And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Dr. Vivek Murthy, now serving his second tour as the nation's Surgeon General, is not just an extraordinarily powerful and compelling voice on public health, which is so important as we work our way through this pandemic. He has an amazing personal story as well, as you can hear in this conversation that we recorded yesterday. Dr. Murthy, good to see you again. So happy to have this time with you. There is so much to talk about going on in your world, in your portfolio uh, right now. But I, I really want to first talk a little bit about you and uh, your story, because it is an extraordinary story. It's one of those great American immigrant stories. Tell me about your family. And uh, you weren't born here. How'd you, how, how you came here, how they came here. Talk a little bit about the beginnings in, in India. Well, thanks, David. It is so nice to see you again and to be here with you. You know, my story is one of many unlikely stories that make up our country here in America. And I was really blessed with parents who had the foresight, the courage, the vision to imagine that there may be a place halfway across the world that may have better opportunities for their children in terms of education, but also just in terms of acceptance. And that might be a a funny thing, you know, for them growing up in India, and you might think, well, that's would naturally be the place where um, their kids would be most accepted. But I think what my parents recognized is they loved so much about their homeland. They loved their family, but they also wanted their children to grow up in a place where they wouldn't be judged by the caste that they were from or by the fact that they came from the wrong family, but where they would be, in fact, allowed to thrive based on their willingness to work hard based on their ideas, based on their willingness to contribute to society. And they saw that, yes, in India, but they saw even greater opportunities for that in the United States, which is why they made their way over the course of many years to the U.S. with stops in England and Scotland and Wales and Newfoundland uh, in Canada. And then eventually they ended up here in the United States where we moved here when I was three. My sister was four. We didn't know anyone, uh, really. We didn't... um, have much in the way of resources. Things were pretty tight financially for us. But for them, it was a breath of fresh air to finally arrive here, a place that they had dreamed of and heard about, a place where they hoped would embrace them the way they hoped to embrace the community that they encountered. And as I've learned more and more about my parents' story, I just realized how many hardships they they worked through and how unlikely it was that they would have even left, uh, you know, India. Because my, my father in particular, he grew up in a very small village in India. He, his father was a farmer. His father's father was a farmer. Um, not a well-off farmer, but actually many times things were incredibly difficult financially for them in the village. Uh, my father, first time he wore uh, shoes was actually when he was 15 years old or so, and he got blisters because he had never, they never had the money to wear anything, uh, you know, in terms of footwear. Uh, they even had to share, you know, a couple of pencils between all Uh, all of the kids in the family, all six kids, because they didn't have money to buy pencils. Um, Things were that desperate. And it was unheard of for anyone to go to college. Uh, Even finishing school was a miracle. My grandfather, I believe, um, didn't he think he finished part of elementary school. Um, So it was the notion that he would not only finish school, but somehow would become a doctor, that he would actually leave the country and that he would build a life halfway across the world. That's just an extraordinarily unlikely story. It, it is. And let me, let me ask you a question about this. I read somewhere that your grandfather was determined that his, was it six children, were not going to live another generation in poverty and that they were going to have broader vistas. And he said, you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And he said to your dad, you're going to become a doctor. Yes. Yeah, no, I'm impressed you know that, David, but that's absolutely right. He sat his kids down. He said to my dad, you're going to become a doctor. He said to my father's brother, you're going to become an engineer. And he said to my father's other brother, you will become an agricultural expert and go to school to study horticulture. Um, so he, he laid that path out for them and, and they followed that path. All of them trained in the disciplines that their father uh, instructed them to train in. Just the idea, I mean, the audacity of him to say, this is what you're going to be. This is what you can become. It may seem odd to people to say, well, you had your career assigned to you by your father. On the other hand, 
the idea that he had such big dreams and those dreams came true is really a tribute to his force of will in some ways. It really was. And he had the, the forethought and the courage to fight for a vision for his kids that he could not create for himself. And he wanted a life for them that was better uh, than his life. But what was interesting about him, David, is he was also actually very much a man of service. And so with all of that, though, my grandfather used to spend several weeks, I believe it was up to a month out of each year, traveling to different villages, raising money to build a youth hostel so that other students would have a place to study. And people would say to him, you're so irresponsible. Your family barely has enough to eat and you're going around raising money like for other kids. Like, have you forgotten your priorities? And he would just listen to that criticism. And then he would just say, well, those kids are our kids too. And it's our responsibility to take care of them. And I can't tell you how many times I've remembered that because in difficult moments like this pandemic, like other times when we feel like our security, our well-being is under threat, the natural thing to do is to retreat inward and say, let me take care of myself and my own. And later I'll take care of other people. But what he knew just intrinsically and what he conveyed down to my father and what my father sought to teach my sister and I is that our destinies are deeply intertwined and our responsibility to each other is sacred. And that when other people are doing poorly, when our community is hurt and struggling, we can't be well off. That's our duty to step up for those around us. Yeah, that is a conviction, an impulse that is so sorely needed now. I mean, there's a real competition of visions between the idea of sort of to be charitable, rugged individualism, but the notion that you look after yourself and the idea that we are part of a larger community. Your dad went off to Britain to study. Your parents had an arranged marriage. Your mom joined him later. And they experienced racism in London. I mean, there was a reason why they left Britain. Talk about that experience and what provoked them to want to move and, and explore and ultimately come here. Yeah, well, David, you know, England in the 1970s had a lot of wonder to it, but it wasn't always the most hospitable place for uh, two dark-skinned people coming from South Asia. And my parents did encounter a lot of racism. I mean, they've met many wonderful people there, too, neighbors and others who cared for them and became good friends. But the racism, including in the healthcare system there, was, was really profound. They lived in England for about, in the UK, for about seven years. But finally, I think, reached a point where they said, we need to find a place where we're more accepted, where there isn't this kind of racism to this degree. We don't want our children to grow up in this environment. My, my sister and I were born in England, and so we were very young when they left, but they were looking ahead. And they were saying, what kind of land do I want my kids to grow up in? Now, America was the place they wanted to come eventually. And it's not because our country is perfect. And certainly we know that we struggle with the legacy of slavery and with racism uh, you know, toward not only Black brothers and sisters in our country, but to people of many different races and ethnicities, like we struggle with that still. But regardless of our the work we still have to do, we were blessed, my sister and I, to find teachers who looked out for us, neighbors who took an interest in our lives and uh, looked out for us. We were able to find mentors uh, who recognized that we were more than the funny sounding names we had or the, you know, the color of our skin, but that we were individuals who had ideas, who were excited to work hard and wanted to embrace this community that our parents had moved to. And so that's why I feel blessed that despite all of the challenges uh, and perils that we still face here in the United States, despite the gap we still have, David, between our aspirations, uh, our aspirational values and our reality, that we are still an extraordinary place that provides unparalleled opportunities for families like mine. You know, I'm the son of an immigrant as well. I've said it hundreds of times here, so it's no mystery to those who listen to this podcast. And I'm grateful as the child of an immigrant often is for the fact that the country was, you know, welcomed them and uh, and made so much possible. But you had challenges of your own. You experienced bullying as a child in, in Miami. Talk about that and, and how you were able to cope with that and overcome that. Well, it's funny, David, that and funny is not the right word, it's, uh, it's sobering, really, how those experiences we have of discrimination or racism or trauma as children stick with us. And, uh, you know, and I remember some of these experiences very clearly. I remember in fourth grade uh, being berated and physically, uh, you know, hit on multiple occasions by a classmate who used to call me Tomahawk Boy, uh, you know, of course, mixing up and confusing uh, my ancestry, uh, being East Indian with that of uh, being American Indian. 
Uh, but you know, it it was he was saying in a very pejorative way, uh, and uh, every day. I worried about when I was leading the classroom, if he was going to be, like sneak up behind me and if another beating, you know, was uh, going to ensue. I also remember in middle school, uh, David, uh, this nine weeks of, of just of pain, really, uh, that I spent in a wood, wood shop elective uh, where I was sitting next to a guy who had just moved from Las Vegas, his family. And I thought I would uh, kind of reach out to him and make him feel included because he had just moved and didn't know anyone. I very quickly found, though, that that he took to turning my heritage sort of against me. And he used to call me Gandhi for those nine weeks, and which you would think would be a compliment, but that's not the way in which he meant it. And would continue to say like, just lots of derogatory statements about my family for the full nine, uh, in a, you know, full hour, you know, that we were together in class. And I'll tell you what sticks out to me about that experience, though. It wasn't just that it made me feel uh, diminished. And as a shy kid who didn't have a lot of confidence, it just for, for the kind of be down my confidence, but something happened at the end of that nine weeks, David, that I'll never forget, which is that this, uh, this other classmate of ours, his name is Eric Fong. I didn't really know him, but he was sitting at, you know, across the room. He finally came up one day, uh, to our table. And he said to this other, uh, to this other student who was bullying me, he said, I've been watching what you're doing. He's like, I'm just, I'm sick of it. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to let you do that to my friend. And I will always remember that because Eric did not have to come across the table. Uh, the room to do that. He was smaller. He was, wasn't as strong uh, as the guy who was bullying me, but something in him, David said, wrong is wrong. And each of us has a responsibility to stand up when we see something wrong. And I'll always remember what Eric did. And it reminds me uh, that one of my responsibilities is, as a human being is to look out for people who may also be uh, threatened, who may be beaten down, who may be discriminated against in some way, and to extend a hand and to lift them up in the same way that Eric extended a hand to me and helped bring me to a better place. Despite all this, you, you ended up, you excelled in school. You ended up at, at Harvard. And the thing that I find so stunning about your story is that you, you were a freshman at Harvard and you started something called Visions Worldwide, you in conjunction with your sister, to educate people in India and the United States about HIV AIDS. And you built this into a large organization with chapters all over. And yeah, you know, David, it was a, it was a formative experience, one of the defining experiences of my life, actually. I was, um, you know, I, my sister was 18 at the time. I was 17. We had no idea what we were doing. What we lacked in experience, though, and in formal education, you know, we tried to make up for with enthusiasm and passion and a willingness to work hard. And what we saw in front of us, David, was a profound problem emerging, which was that HIV uh, you know, was a huge issue here, certainly in our country, in the United States, but it was also on the rise in other countries, including in India. And we realized that on a visit we made there with family on a high school when we were in high school. And we just thought to ourselves, gosh, like it is spreading like wildfire here. It seemed at the time that the private sector was looking the other way, that the government looked at it as a Western problem, which is a phrase we kept hearing again and again not a problem here. This is a Western problem. And so we thought to ourselves, well, what would it be like if we mobilized students who nobody really looked to as an asset or a resource for addressing HIV? And that's what we set about doing is we built this peer education program. We would train people here in the United States. We would take them to India to work with students there, help them build their own chapters. Eventually we started building chapters here in the United States. It was an extraordinary experience though, uh, that taught me, yes, it taught me a great deal about HIV, but it taught me so much more. It taught me about leadership. It taught me about the importance of service. It taught me how fulfilling the relationships are that you can build when you seek to serve. And that was not enough for you, studying biochemical sciences at Harvard and, and running this essentially global youth mission, as it were, uh, apparently wasn't enough for you because you also f formed, and tell me how uh, one pronounces it, but this health partnership. Yes, it's, it's pronounced swastia, yeah. which, means, uh, which effectively connotes to community health partnership in Sanskrit. Um, but that was also, David, and I've, over my time of life, I've just like grown more and more to just appreciate the, how the universe sometimes guides us uh, to opportunities in unexpected ways. And this came about an unexpected way, literally over Christmas break when I was in college, we had some friends visiting. And in a late night conversation, it must have been midnight or 1am, uh, my sister and these, uh, this other brother-sister pair found ourselves just talking about what it would be like to actually go to small villages in India and do something to help improve health there, to actually train 
people from those villages to be uh, sources of health education and health care. And, you know, we actually just made a decision that night, hey, why don't we just do this together? We went to India, you know, the, the following summer, we found a hospital in a small uh, town called Tringeri in a rural part of South India. And we started training young women uh, from the surrounding villages with the help of other organizations to become those community health workers. And I'll say one of the most inspiring things about it, David, was it woke me up just, just to how, what the extraordinary resources are that are available in all in our communities across the country, including incredibly under-resourced communities. But people are just, they often just don't have the opportunities. They don't have the chance and the support to, to just blossom and to serve their communities the way they can. Because these women have become established as leaders in their community. Several of them ran for office, local office later mm-hmm. and won. But it just reminded me, David, that if we invest in people, if we give folks a chance, there is so much that they can do to serve their communities. And uh, I will always remember that. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. And you graduated and you did well. And then I have to say this only because I don't want people to think that you sprung from some fantasy. You were rejected. You wanted to go to Harvard Medical School. They didn't accept you. Probably in terms of professional pursuits, that was unaccustomed to you. How does someone who who is used to achieving and achieving process failure? And, And by the way, to me, Going to Yale instead of Harvard Medical School is hardly a failure, but there it was anyway. So how did you how did you process all of that? I had convinced myself this was the place for me. And I still remember going home one day and hearing people on the, the bus who were students talk about the fact that they had gotten their acceptance letters. And I went home and I saw this letter on my doorstep and I opened it and it was a rejection letter and I was absolutely crushed. I had a tendency to focus on what wasn't working out as opposed to what was working out. And so my failures were amplified. It felt like my career was over. And obviously it wasn't. I was blessed to be accepted to other medical schools. I went on to Yale Medical School. Like life wasn't over. And it turned out- I mean, out, Yale's accredited, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're acceptable. Checked, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, that, that's how absurd it sounds. But this is what we do to ourselves. It took my father actually stepping in and something he said to me, which actually angered me uh, initially. So he said to me, he said, you know, I know you're very upset about this, but he said, in some ways, I'm glad you didn't get into Harvard because you would have gone. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, that was the right place for me. And he said to me, he's like, Vic, sometimes you have to, have the experience of being at different institutions and different environments to meet different people and understand how the world works differently. And sometimes if you're not able to make that choice yourself, the universe will make that choice for you hmm. and create those opportunities for you. What a wonderful way to look at it. Yeah, and he was right. And in fact, you went back to Harvard to teach and to practice medicine. And while you were there, because you also got an MBA at Yale, but you launched a couple of ventures. One was called Apernicus, a networking site for research scientists. Another called Trial Networks, which is a cloud-based clinical trial optimization system to improve quality and efficiency and getting approval for pharmaceuticals and so on. Tell me about this entrepreneurial side. Well, David, I had this inkling from when I was in medical school, uh, actually, honestly, even before then, that I would probably do things in my life that were hybrid careers, that I wouldn't uh, do exactly what my father did, for example, and practice, you know, like, you know, full-time and exclusively, that I, you know, that probably do, you know, a, a combination of things. And I didn't know what that combination would be, though. And so, like, there was a part of me, where I realized now in retrospect, which enjoyed the process of creation, of bringing a small group of people together around a vision for how we could make the world better, and then just working uh, like heck, to make that vision come to life. And in the process, building wonderful friendships with people who, you know, shared your values and your passion. And that's actually what was driving me. But I always felt this hunger to create. I think we may have been acquainted uh, originally when you uh, created some uh, Doctors for Obama back in 2007. But uh, that led to when President Obama got elected, you had a number of assignments. And ultimately, you were appointed Surgeon General. First of all, explain to people what the Surgeon General 
does. They see you in your uniform, and I'm sure a lot of people are a little confused as to what the role is. Well, it's a great question, and, and it's not just people who may be listening. I found, David, that many people in government also weren't sure what the role of the Surgeon General was. But it, they really, there are two primary roles of the Surgeon General. The first is to provide the public uh, with scientific uh, information about health so people can make good decisions for themselves and their families. And that could be information about vaccines, uh, about obesity and heart disease. It could be about issues that I'm deeply concerned about and have been working on, including loneliness and social connection, as well as mental health uh, and emotional well-being. But the other role of the Surgeon General is to oversee one of our eight uniformed services uh, in the U.S. government, which is the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps, a group of 6,000 officers, who include doctors, nurses, physical therapists, pharmacists, and others, who dedicate themselves to improving public health in communities each and every day. And we also deploy them during times of emergency, including 9-11, when hurricanes and tornadoes hit. Uh, during the Ebola uh, crisis, uh, as you may remember, David, we deployed hundreds of our officers to Monrovia uh, in Liberia to set up the Monrovia Medical Unit and help with the Ebola response. And we've deployed many of them, uh, thousands of them, in fact, during the COVID-19 crisis to help with everything from testing to vaccination. I want to talk about the role that you and and uh, and, and those who, the 6,000 or so who work for you played during this crisis. And as you talked about the role of the Surgeon General, you talked about your, your vision of public health in very expansive terms, uh, holistic terms. And one of the things that you have you said uh, prior to your appointment uh, was that gun violence uh, is a public health problem. Uh, that seems that that seems obvious. It seemed obvious then. It seems even more ho- obvious now. Uh, but it didn't sit well with uh, the NRA, and uh, they led a very uh, aggressive campaign to try and keep you from being confirmed. And it, it leads me to this: the the question of um, the politicization of public health issues. You know, it seems as if we've gotten far worse that issues that should be uh, separate from politics and uh, open to discovery and discussion and so on have become enmeshed in politics and in culture. And it seems like it's worse now than it was even four or five years ago in your first tour of duty as Surgeon General. David, I think you're hitting on something that is that is painful to see, which is that science and medicine and public health more broadly have been politicized too often. And it's not a new phenomenon, but it feels like it has increased in a world where polarization does not only feel like it's growing, but it's amplified, uh, you know, on social media and on, on traditional media. And so I think part of the challenge we face is that I think people in public health and in medicine and science, I think, have seen their voices drowned out very often by the voices of those who may not actually have subject matter expertise, but have a platform. I think the other challenge that we're facing, David, is that those voices in science have also not traditionally engaged directly with the public, but they've remained in their laboratories, in their clinics and hospitals, and they have ceded their voice to others with platforms and with uh, bully pulpits and bullhorns to share the message of what science actually says. But I think what we're seeing, and with the product of that, David, is not just politicization, but it's been misinformation that has spread rampantly at a speed and scale that we have not seen, aided and abetted by technology, but also by this politicization of science and public health. And if we want to address that, then number one, we've got to be comfortable calling a spade a spade and describing the reality that we see. And that means being willing to talk about public health issues, even if they are controversial. The fact that marijuana or gun uh, violence or other issues which we deem in some circles as controversial, that because they have public health import means we need to talk about them and we don't stay away from issues just because they're controversial. But it also means, David, that we have to, I think in medicine and public health, speak more directly to communities to help cut through some of that noise. It's some of what you're seeing happen as part of this COVID-19 response and the effort to get folks vaccinated. But we've got to do that much more broadly. Like We don't train doctors and nurses and public health professionals and how to communicate effectively with the public. We teach them how to talk to a patient one-on-one in an exam room, but that's very different from communicating with the public. It's very different from engaging with policymakers to bring the voice of science into the halls of legislation and where regulation is made as well. 
So on this issue of vaccinations, we have, I mean, I'm making this characterization, this phrase up, maybe others have used it, but we have, we seem to have like vaccination deserts. We have places where there is a high degree of resistance. And a lot of those places, it is sort of linked to politics. There is a, a sense of distrust, misinformation about what the vaccinations mean. How, how concerned are you that these places uh, where there are low vaccination rates are going to become the scene of resurgence of the virus in the coming months? David, I'm really concerned about areas in our country which have low vaccination rates. I think they will see surges of cases. I don't think we'll see the kind of surges we saw in January of this year, which were extraordinary and, and just tragic. But we will see potentially smaller surges unless we close those vaccination gaps. Because keep in mind, you know, even though we have delivered nearly 200, 320 million vaccines into people's arms in, the, in our country, we also have millions of people who are still unvaccinated and they're not evenly distributed, but they cluster in communities and in, in various states. Every person who is, does not have immune protection against the virus is a place where the virus can hide and spread. And so we're already seeing right now states that are experiencing increases in cases fueled in part by the Delta variant, which is a variant more transmissible uh, than any other variant that we have seen to date and potentially more dangerous, meaning that it may cause more severe disease as well. Uh, If we want to stop that from happening, there's one critical solution here, which is to get people vaccinated as quickly as possible. Does the failure to, uh, to do that create the potential for even more virulent strains of this virus? Because the virus uh, adapts and adjusts, and as we find ways to defend against it, it develops new variants that are, are, as you say, more contagious, more, uh, more deadly. That's right. The uncontrolled spread of the virus anywhere, whether that's in the United States or around the world, will create the conditions where new variants can arise. And the truth is, The majority of those variants might be inconsequential uh, to us, but this is happening at such speed and scale that there are now more and more variants that are consequential uh, to us. The Delta variant is just the latest one. But what what is so interesting, Dave, if you look back on this whole year and and change of this pandemic, is just how humbling this experience has been uh, for all of us, including those of us in science and medicine. Uh, This is a novel coronavirus. It's new. It's something we haven't seen before, and we're learning more and more about it. But the more we learn about it, we realize it has the potential uh, to mutate and change uh, at a pace even faster uh, than many thought. We realize that it affects more organ systems uh, in our body uh, and causes symptoms that linger for months uh, in a way that no one really anticipated would be the case in the beginning. So we've got to stay humble about this, but it's why, David, it's not only important for us to crush this virus here at home, but why it's so important that we provide a leadership role in the world to ensuring that other countries can vaccinate their populations, because that has a material impact on the kind of variants we may see in our country going forward. And the president uh, at the G7 presented an American uh, offer to uh, supply half a billion uh, doses. The other countries matched that. But the need, we're told, is 11, uh, 11 billion doses. Uh, are, are we doing enough? Is the world doing enough? Well, certainly, this is a, we're in a race you know, against time here, a race against the variants, if you will. And we've got to get so much more vaccine out to, to the rest of the world. There, there are a few fronts, though, in which uh, on which the president and, uh, and the rest of the team are working on to ensure the U.S. leads in this way. So you, you heard about the 80 million doses the U.S. committed to and the additional 500 million on that it will be purchasing from Pfizer uh, for to distribute to 92 low and middle income countries. But beyond that, there are actually other critical steps the U.S. is taking. It's working to uh, to push other partners, other partner countries uh, to contribute uh, doses as well. We are also working with companies like Pfizer and Moderna and others to scale up uh, their production of vaccine, which will not only help the world, but could also help create jobs here. And very importantly, uh, we are working with other countries like India and Australia and Japan, part of our quad partnership, as well as others to stand up local production capacity. So we will continue in all of this, as well as working with COVAX, which is the global effort 
to get vaccine uh, distributed, produced and distributed to the world. But it's going to take working on all those fronts, David, because time is not on our side here. We're seeing countries like India and Brazil experience still extraordinary numbers of cases and deaths. So we've got to pull together. But this is a time when leadership is so important. And having the United States step up to lead, to not only lead by example, but to also push other countries then to help stand up manufacturing, to donate doses, this is absolutely essential to getting the world vaccinated quickly. You mentioned earlier that in your first tour, you uh, dealt with Zika, you dealt with Ebola. What have we learned from this experience? How likely is it that we're going to face other pandemics like this? And how fortified are we to deal with those? Or is this going to be a constant disruption of life as we know it? Well, David, I don't think it has to be uh, a constant disruption of our life. But I do think there will be a constant threat of pathogens, of viruses like COVID-19 that may arise in the future. The question is not, will they arise? The question is, will we be prepared uh, to contain them, to identify them early, to respond vigorously and quickly, whether it's with a vaccine or with other therapeutics? And I think we can be, but we have a lot of work to do in that regard. From Zika and Ebola, we did learn a lot. But David, as you know well, like lessons learned are one thing. Lessons implemented longitudinally over time are another thing. And what's really required here is a nonpartisan effort to recognize that the work of pandemic preparedness needs to go across administrations. Uh, it may be jump-started by this administration, but uh, you know the next administration, the administration after that, in, with the support of Congress, need to be continuing to invest in our pandemic preparedness and, and shore it up and pursue it in a way that leads with science. And that isn't uh, politicized, uh, you know, in, in the way that I, unfortunately, I think, uh, you know, our COVID response has been at times. So, yes, I think, you know, we will uh, do better. But here's where we need to, to, to really build just categorically is we need much stronger public health infrastructure in terms of systems and people. We need to enhance our manufacturing and distribution capacity when it comes to vaccines and therapeutics. We need to strengthen our communication infrastructure which means not just that we have better messaging and better tech platforms, but it means that we've built partnerships with communities all across the country, recognizing that trusted messengers and communities are sometimes far more effective uh, than the Surgeon General or anybody else who may be speaking from a federal stage. And finally, we've got to recognize that the partnerships that we build are absolutely essential here, both domestically and globally. You're obviously a very even-tempered person, but how frustrated do you get about people as a political or philosophical matter refusing vaccines or people saying, I'm not going to wear masks? Well, David, you know what I go back to all the time is my experience as a doctor, where, you know, as a doctor, you don't sign up to only take care of patients who have a certain worldview. The oath you take is to take care of everyone. And, you know, we're blessed in medicine to be able to take care of folks who have many different worldviews. And so I've had to have many conversations over the years with patients who were eager to get their vaccines and those who didn't want anything to do with vaccines, with people who were skeptical about medicines that we were recommending, to others who were embracing, and to some who had absolutely no trust in the healthcare system, to others who had no problem with the healthcare system. And so for me, like what I learned over the years through my patients who taught me is that you have to first start by listening and understanding why people do what they do. Because not everyone who has the same position has the same interests, right? Some people mm -hmm. may not wear a mask because they're really worried that it may impair their breathing in some way because they heard that on the internet. Others may not wear a mask because they heard somewhere that it was ineffective. Or others may feel like they may have heard a rumor that maybe somebody is trying to control them, you know, and, uh, and that they see this as an act of independence. So you just never know why people do what they do unless you pause and you listen to them. And I try not to paint people with too broad a brush in that regard. I also find that, you know, we all interestingly want some similar things. You know, we all want to be healthy. I haven't met anybody who says, you know, hey, I want to go out there, get COVID and then suffer long-term consequences and have my family experience the same. Nobody's saying that. Everyone actually wants to remain healthy. But, but what we have to do is, number one, understand their concerns. Number two, recognize that many people have been exposed to misinformation, which is why we need an aggressive, clear approach as a country at how we are going to deal with misinformation regarding to health. And finally, I just also recognize that, yes, there are some people who, a small minority of people who may be, you know, as I think of them, um, people who are not acting in good faith. You know, people who may know the truths and fact, but are willfully going out there and spreading misinformation, either for a political gain or for economic gain. And that does frustrate me. And so they're trying to get people to buy their stuff. Like those kind of false claims can hurt people's health. They can impair and, and injure uh, their trust in the healthcare system. 
which is a much bigger consequence. And so it does frustrate me when people, for political or economic reasons, uh, try to hoodwink and deceive others, even though they know better. Your colleague and uh, friend of mine, and he's been on this podcast, Dr. Fauci, has become quite a target. And we've seen the demonization of him. You probably encountered him when you were doing your work as a kid on AIDS and HIV because he was a hero in that effort. But this demonization of scientists, of public health figures, how dangerous is that? Well, David, it's deeply worrisome to me what public health experts have endured during this pandemic in terms of attacks, sometimes physical attacks, uh, in terms of just, I think, a demonization that has been unwarranted, given that these are folks who are often putting themselves and their families at risk in order to keep the public safe. And look, Tony is, is one example of that, Dr. Fauci. And he's a man who's committed himself to our country for decades, from HIV onward. And having considered him a friend, I've worked with him in, you know, over the years, he's uh, he, you know, he's there staying up late nights, trying to do the right thing, get the right information and convey it to the public. But I think even beyond Dr. Fauci, I think we've seen this with local public health leaders, with state level public health leaders. And what it does, uh, David, which I worry about, is it conveys to the next generation of potential public health leaders that this is just too dangerous to take on, or it's not worth the hassle. Why would you subject yourself to this? And I've heard public health students raise these questions with me saying, hey, do you think this is really the right time to go into public health? Or is this maybe this is not a good decision for my family uh, to play a public leadership role? But this is exactly the time where we need more public health leaders to be speaking up and to be connecting directly with the public. I think the challenge that we have, David, is, is, is several. Fold. One is that we science functions best when our policymakers recognize the importance of science and allow policy to shape science. Uh, to be shaped by science, uh, and who also allow scientists to lead. It's one of the reasons why, you know, when President Biden uh, took office, and, and even before he did over the prior year, he would always say to me and to others that I want you guys out there talking and saying what you think is right, uh, not speaking political points, but speaking the language of science and telling it like it is, even if it's politically inconvenient. And that's what, you know, historically we've had political leaders do on both sides of the aisle. But that is extraordinarily important. But the other thing that's really important is we've got to build um, more channels and pathways through which the voice of experts can actually reach people. And this is a place where technology platforms can play a role. Right now, one of my concerns is even though some technology companies have taken steps to like, de-promote, if you will, content that is clearly false or to up-promote uh, content that is credible, we still know that the algorithms on some of these platforms yeah. just drive content to people that sometimes can reinforce uh, that false information because sometimes this is how the algorithms are built. And so, again, you have the voices of those who have the knowledge, experience and public interest at heart often drowned out uh, by voices that are, are sort of more, uh, they're louder, they're more glitzy and they get more clicks. And so they get up promoted effectively uh, by algorithms. Um, so we've got to do this as a society, figure out how to move these voices forward, get people to connect directly with their local doctors, with scientists in their state and community, or with organizations like the CDC, whoever it is you choose to trust. What's important to me is that people can reach and hear from and trust in uh, scientists uh, at a local, state, or federal level. That is how I think we will start to restore a more science-driven approach to public health and how we'll frankly encourage more talented, thoughtful people to enter the profession and keep this work going. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You wrote a book a few years ago called Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. You've emphasized throughout your two tenures now as a Surgeon General. By the way, your last one was interrupted when President Trump removed you and inserted his own choice there. Very highly unusual thing to do, but that's for another day. But what I'm interested in is your emphasis on mental health and mental well and wellness. And on this issue of loneliness, you mentioned... Uh, social media, you know, when social media first uh, uh, emerged, the idea was this will create a connect communities. 
But in many ways, what it's done is isolate people and uh, divide communities uh, and has added to the pressures that people feel. But so talk to me about mental health and loneliness as a public health issue. Well, David, this is one of those things where if you had told me like seven years ago that you and I would be sitting here talking about loneliness, I would have said that seems pretty unlikely to me. But one of the things I was taught, David, by people all across our country when I was Surgeon General the first time was that there are millions of people in our country struggling with loneliness and isolation. And as I dug more into their research, I understood a couple of things. One is that there's just a heavy stigma around it. Like people never came to me and said, hi, my name is David. My name is Vivek. I'm lonely. But they would instead talk about feeling like they had to carry all the burdens of the world on their own or feel that, or they would say, you know, if I disappeared, no one would even notice or care. Um, and as I dug into the research, what I understood, David, is that this has real consequences for our physical and mental health. The people who struggle with loneliness have a significantly higher risk of premature death, of heart disease, of dementia, of depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, delayed wound healing, and the, the list goes on here. Um, and there are biological reasons why this is the case, because loneliness actually puts us in a stress state, which when it's chronic can actually be very harmful to our health. But the bottom line is during this pandemic, that has gotten worse for many people, uh, that as they have had to isolate uh, from others, as they've had to uh, endure uh, a pandemic that had no end in sight uh, for so much uh, of this past year, they felt more and more isolated. And so that's not, it's not a surprise that we've seen rates of depression and anxiety increase, David, over the past year. It's also not surprising, although it's very disturbing, that we've seen the pediatric ER visits for mental health reasons increase during this pandemic. So I'm deeply concerned about our mental health as a country. I'm worried about our kids in particular, but I actually think there's a path forward here. And this is the issue I really want to focus on during my time in office is is the fact that, look, we have the tools and the know-how to address mental health. We, we know some of the critical steps that have to be done to improve access to treatment, uh, whether it's enhancing our investment in mental health providers and grow that force, or whether it's integrating mental health and primary care. We also know, David, a lot about programs that work on the prevention side. We know that a number of social emotional learning programs in schools, if we actually invested in them, could not only improve the mental health and well-being of our kids, but they can actually reduce the likelihood that they develop substance use disorders down the line, that they run into trouble with the law, improve their graduation rates, reduce teen pregnancy rates. So these are all things that we already know. But there's a larger cultural piece here, David, which I, I think is absolutely essential too, which is that there is, I think, some fundamentally something we have to grapple with here, which is that as a society, COVID has forced us to ask, what are we going to build our lives around? Are we going to build our lives around work? Are we going to build our lives around the three pillars that society tells us constitute our source of worth and value, which is our acquisition of money, our acquisition of power, or acquisition of fame, right? Or there's an alternative. Are we going to build our lives around people, around relationships, uh, recognizing that those are a, a, our key source of fulfillment, well-being, and health? Because, David, I'll tell you this. When I reflect back on the conversations I had with patients over the years, especially those who were in their final moments of life, where sometimes they were alone and I was the only one with my colleagues in the hospital there witnessing their final moments and holding their hand. When I think about the conversations I had with some of those patients sitting at their bedside, I think about what they talked about. David, none of them talked about how much money was in their bank account or how many followers they had on Instagram or how many times they were mentioned in the paper. Or how they didn't get into Harvard Law School, or Harvard Medical School, I should say. Or how they didn't get into Harvard Medical School. You're absolutely <laughs> yeah. right. You know what they did talk about were their relationships. They talked about the people they loved. They talked about the people who had broken their hearts, the people they wished they had spent more time with. And in the final moments of life, David, what becomes clear to all of us is that it is our relationships that matter. And we don't have to wait till the end of our life to recognize that though and to build a life around that. And that's why what I'm particularly interested in now, David, is how do we design a post-pandemic life? How do we do that consciously? How do we not just slip back into 2019, but recognize that we have an opportunity to design our lives, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and our schools in a way that support social connection, that support 
well-being. If we do that, we will have come out of this pandemic, David, stronger, more resilient, and healthier and more fulfilled than we were even before this pandemic began. Well, that is an extraordinary mission that you've taken on and, and, and extraordinarily important. I couldn't agree with you more. I think often about how this pandemic has changed my own outlook uh, about things in, in ways that I, I never would have imagined. But um, I'm not sure we have our arms around the full impact, positive and negative, of uh, of the pandemic and this experience that we've gone through uh, together. But uh, But it's great that it is a focus for you. David, can I just ask you, I'm curious, how do you think the pandemic has changed your outlook on how you, you hope to live your life going forward? You know, uh, I've been traveling a lot in my life. My, my uh, pursuits uh, have, uh, have taken me away from my family. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just spent uh, 16 months under the same roof with my incredible wife, Susan, uh, who to whom I've been married for 41 years. And um, I realized that uh, the most sublime moments in life are taking a walk down a long country road with Susan and, and uh, Mac, my, my dog. It's spending time with my grandchildren and my children. Uh, and I've realized a kind of happiness that I knew it was there. I didn't fully understand it. So it's causing me to reshape my priorities in ways that I wish I had a long time ago. Hearing how it's affected you and Susan, this pandemic, and your, your thoughts on, on how you want to shape your life. I mean, that, that, to me, that, that echoes some of how, how I have felt, you know, being under this same roof with my extended family here, my mother, father, my wife, my two kids, my sister, my grandmother, and two cats, you know, for the better <laughs> part of 16 months. And it's been chaotic and complicated and wonderful. And it's uh, also made me rethink, like, how much do I want to travel? How do I want to make decisions about where to live to be actually closer to family? How do, uh, it's made me think, like, maybe I want to actually spend more time at home with my kids, you know, as opposed to, like, on my career down the line. Like, it's made me rethink all kinds of things. Yes. But I, but I think you're totally right that there are people. See, there are people all across our country who are having the same thoughts that you and I are having in some different you know, variant variation, like they're thinking, I want to live my life differently, but they may not have the, the ability to do so economically. And that, this is why I think this reassessment, David, of what we want a post-pandemic society to look like, not only has cultural implications and implications on the choices we make in our lives, but has policy implications. Like if we truly believe that putting our people at the center of our lives and relationships at the center of our lives is what gives us a greater shot at health and happiness, then that means that we need to think about how we better support parents uh, in our society. It means that we need to think about how we better support kids in schools, as well as through pre-K three and pre-K four, making those educational experiences universal about how we invest in social emotional learning in our schools so that kids have the greatest shot at building a foundation for a healthy emotional and social life from the earliest ages. So there are all kinds of implications to how we have that conversation. But my greatest fear is that we won't have that conversation, that we'll just snap back to where we were pre-pandemic. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from people around our country. If we can give people permission to have this dialogue, if we can jumpstart uh, this dialogue. And I hear from businesses and educators all the time, David, who are saying, yeah, it doesn't quite feel right to go back to exactly where things were, but we're not quite sure how to do it otherwise. So we have this window of time. I don't know how long it'll remain open, but this window where the experience of the pandemic is fresh, the learnings and insights are there, either at the surface or just under the surface. And we have to bring them to light. We've got to have this dialogue and we've got to make decisions together. But how we're going to live our life differently, because the implications of the decisions we make now will impact us and our children, I believe, for generations to come. One of the things that we know about the pandemic is that in the last year, uh, gun violence uh, in the major cities around this country has increased by 30%. There is a real concern about violence and particularly gun violence. We've seen mass shootings and so on. I know you got into hot water because you've been very blunt about the public health implications of this, but we have 350 million guns in this country. Um, 
it is you know a, a, it is the instrument of choice for people who take their own lives, but it, uh, also other lives. Um, what do we do about this uh, at this point? How do we how do we what is the public health answer uh, to this epidemic of violence that we're experiencing? It is so painful, David, to watch what is happening in, in our country as violence has grown in many quarters. And, you know, you know, it's my concern about violence in general, about gun violence in particular, comes from, you know, my experiences as a, as a doctor who's taking care of so many patients who have been the victims of gun violence and, you know, have worked with them through the physical and the psychological wounds that that leaves often years after the incident. And nobody wants this to happen. But I think that the challenges that we're dealing with fall into a few buckets. I think, number one, we as a country have just vastly, and I think embarrassingly, underinvested in research in this area to understand, you know, what's driving gun violence and, and what works uh, to address it. We do, we somehow have car- have carved out uh, gun violence, you know, out of the broader aspect of public health concerns and decided we are just not going to fund that. We're going to fund everything from heart disease to breast cancer research to other things that we should yeah, fund. CDC has been proscribed from looking at this question. Right. And this is a place where I was very happy to see Congress a couple of years ago step up and finally provide some funding to the CDC to do this work uh, as the much needed research. And that's encouraging. We certainly need much more of those resources and that uh, to fund that research. But I think that is a step in the right direction. Uh, but the other thing I think that's really important here is that the conversation around gun violence has become just so politicized and I think has, has become far too far removed from the lives of everyday Americans. Like we need to have these conversations locally. We need communities to come together and talk about how to address uh, the rise in violence in their communities. But too often what's happening is I worry uh, that, uh, you know, that ideology and that uh, politics are driving a discussion that's really about public health and people's lives. Uh, and and uh, if that doesn't change, then I worry that we will be stuck. Uh, but the final thing I'll just say is this, that we've also to recognize that there is a, a uh, for some aspects of violence, a, a connection, if you will, uh, to our mental health and emotional well-being. Uh, we know that about two-thirds of deaths related to, to guns are suicides, right? And that is a, a tragedy, but it's uh, a tragedy in a country that has not done nearly enough uh, to address mental health concerns and that still has a terrible stigma uh, around mental health that prevents people from coming forward and admitting that they need help. And so we need to not only invest in in expanding both prevention and treatment services for mental health, but we've got to invest early in our kids, in our schools, uh, in social emotional learning programs and others that have been shown to have very positive and cost-effective impacts on rates of violence as well as on mental health but we're just not investing there. So as a whole, as a country, we need a comprehensive approach uh, to addressing violence. We need to be able to have honest, thoughtful conversations in our communities that are not hijacked by politics or ideology. And we need scientists and researchers and teachers and parents to be the ones helping lead and guide those conversations. Unless we do those things, I think it's gonna be hard for us to get a handle you know, on, on violence in our communities. There's no single policy that's going to turn this whole challenge around. We need a broader shift in our approach to addressing violence. And that's going to take uh, courage as well. There are many courageous people in our country who have stood up to not only say something about this violence, but to put forward legislation, to build programs in their communities, to, to take upon themselves, you know, whatever big or small way, efforts to reduce gun violence. Uh, you know, when I was uh, you know, when I named gun violence as a, as a public health issue in my own way and, and got into hot water because of that, to me, that didn't change the calculus in, in saying it. People would ask me all the time, they would say, do you wish you didn't tweet that? Wouldn't it would have made your confirmation a whole lot easier uh, back in 2014? And I say, absolutely not. Like, I, I would say that again today, and I've said it recently, and it's because it's true. Whenever you have a large number of people who are dying for preventable reasons, that is a public health reason. A public health issue. It doesn't matter what the manner uh, of death and injury might be. If people are losing their lives in large numbers for preventable reasons, that is a public health issue. And we've got to approach it that way. We've got to be bold and courageous about calling out uh, the issue and about taking action, whether that's investing in resources or building the right programs or constructing uh, a place where dial- real dialogue can happen in our communities. 
Thank you. And thank you for that. And thank you also for raising the issue of uh, suicide prevention. I I lost my dad to suicide. That's uh, something that I share with too many other Americans who have lost loved ones and uh, reducing that, you know, eliminating that stigma and getting people the help that they need is just so essential. So thank you for that. So sorry to hear about your dad, David. Yeah. No, I look, I talk about it because I think by talking about it, we do raise awareness that uh, this is not a defective character, but a but an illness that we have to treat as such. You're right, and a lot of us yeah. have lost people to suicide. We have lost a, an uncle, you know, when I was in high school to suicide. It still stays with me. But you're right that a lot of, we don't talk about it often enough. And there's a sense of shame when my uncle actually, you know, uh, took his life. I remember there was extended family who said, "Let's not tell anybody about this because." People look down on our family. Absolutely. And think something's wrong with us. But that sense of shame is, uh, it's corrosive, it's painful, and it's all too prevalent. I didn't talk about it for 30 years and uh, wow. publicly, and I, I'm ashamed of that. Hmm. And when I did, I realized how cathartic it was for others to hear. And so for, to others to hear that, well, this isn't just uh, isolated. It isn't, it isn't something, you know, that we've experienced. It's that many people have experienced and gone through. So we, we, we need to talk about it. I didn't ask you, by the way, you lost how many relatives to the virus? Well, at this point, um, we've lost nine family members to, um, uh, to COVID-19, uh, a few here in the United States, uh, a number in India. It's, you know, there, there are people out there who've lost just as many, if not more relatives, but however many you've lost and that sense of loss, I know is painful for, for all of us who have seen loved ones struggle with this virus and ultimately uh, lose their lives to it. Yeah, it makes it very personal for you. It does. It does. You know, my. Um, it's not just even the lives lost. It's like the, the number of family members and close friends who've gotten seriously ill, you know, and have uh, been in the hospital. Who have and and we, you know, as family members looking in from the outside, wondering, is this it? Is this like the last we're going to see of them and hear of them with this terrible pen, terrible virus? But you know, it's it, my father. You know, when India was experiencing its massive surge in cases, which is when we lost a few more relatives. You know, he he did what his father did, which is he saw the, a country that was running out of oxygen, that didn't have enough beds, that didn't have enough masks. And he said, how can I help? And he just started, you know, raising some funds here and there from friends, putting his own money into buying oxygen concentrators and other, and masks and other supplies, and then just uh, FedExing them like on his own to, to various hospitals hmm. in rural parts of India where, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes for resources to get to the small villages and other places they get to the big cities. Um, but it was just another reminder to me that, uh, you know, we've all gone through pain and loss, but the way that we heal is we find ways to serve one another. And it turns out, David, that one of the greatest insights that I got from my work on loneliness and from talking to thousands of people about their experiences of loneliness and how it was impacting their lives was that one of the greatest antidotes to loneliness as well is service. Because when we serve others, we not only form a connection with others, we not only bring purpose and meaning into our lives, but we remind ourselves that we have value, that we have worth, which is something that when we're lonely, when we're struggling with our mental health, we can very quickly start to feel that we're worthless, uh, that we just have no value. And service reminds us uh, of our connection to others and of the value, the intrinsic value that we hold. I could talk to you for a really long time, but I, I would get uh, summoned by your staff and <laughs> thrown off a tall building. So I'm not going to do that, but I, I, I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you down the line. I hope to see you too, David. Take care. And Thank I hope you. you enjoy as much time under the same roof with Susan as you can. <laughs> Thank you. I will. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.